Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Yeah, that's the Dean episode 64. Uh, We have so much fun uh, pregame before before we hit record. Uh, We're lucky none of this gets recorded before we actually hit record (laughs) or else there may (laughs) may get in trouble. But I am glad you are here either watching live with us or watching on replay in Ask the Dean. We are here for you, the mapped member. Uh, on a weekly basis, and then for the public on a monthly basis, the first Monday historically, although that will be changing soon. More to come with when we record Ask the Dean. Uh, But we're here to answer your questions. So if you are here and you want some questions answered, ask away. Dr. Scott Wright, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing (laughs) extremely well. Uh, Thank you, Ryan. It's been a great day so far. I love Mondays. Uh, because uh, for a variety of reasons, but because of this meeting, it's, it's always so much fun to get online with everybody and answer these questions. And so I'm, I'm doing great. Love it. Love it. Love it. Verenia Granham, our newest advisor at MAPT. How are you doing today? Muy bien, Dr. Gray. Dr. Gray. Bueno, bueno. Um, for... Uh, for those of you who don't know Verinia yet, you again are our newest advisor, former assistant dean of pre-health advising and STEM advising at Hofstra University. Um, so you, you know it all. You know it all. And now I, you get to come share it all with, with our students here at MAPT. Um, if you Love are it. looking for some personal statement help, mock interview help, Verinia is your gal. So thanks for or being you- here, Verinia. You're welcome. Or if you just want to brush up on your Spanish, I'm here for oh, that yeah. too. Yeah, there you go. There yes. You go. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, bueno. And Rachel Grubbs, co-founder of MAPT, my partner in crime. Lots and so lots and lots of MCAT experience. <laughs> what? Okay. Oh, I said it's me. I also speak uh, some Spanish, I'll although you should you. still get tutoring from Vrinia, not me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, awesome. Let's go ahead and jump into some questions today. We'll get them answered. All right. Oh, first question. So many students freaking out about Casper. What is the weight yep. of Casper at schools that require it? I received a score in the first quartile, and I have no idea if this is something to be concerned about or how it may be used uh, in my story. Hmm. Scott, what do you think? This is new. So, yeah, it is. And, you know, I think that it's still unclear to me, at least, uh, how schools are using it. Uh, some schools, in terms of the weight uh, of, of impact that it might have, some schools it's going to be zero because they're, although they're requiring it, they may not even be using it in their process. They may be using it for a post mortem study on how it, might, how it may have affected 
the, uh, the, the process that they're looking at. Uh, those schools that are using it actually in the admissions process, I, 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 it's unclear to me at this point what the impact might be, uh, particularly in this case with this student where he got the first uh, quartile. I know that's very uh, uh, concerning to, to students. I had another student recently who same kind of scenario. And uh, but, you know, my my answer to, to that to that question is there's nothing you can do about it at this point. I understand yep. the concern, but, you know, it is what it is. You can't retake it at least this year. So just, you know, you got to just kind of wait and see, you know, how things play out. My guess is that it shouldn't have much of an impact, but, uh, but it's unclear to me. Yeah. Brady, any thoughts on silly Casper? No, I just want to echo what, what um, Dr. Wright was just saying. It's, it, it is unclear. I was thinking of, you know, the magic eight ball. You know, you can't, you, we just have to kind of wait and see, um, you know, as Dr. Wright was just saying, what post-application cycle, how this will be used. Um, but I know it's stressful. Um, know your motivations for applying to medical school. It's not, you know, don't let this discourage you. This isn't the only piece to your application. Yeah. Keep well, that in mind. Or I, I said, I said, well said, but or, or as uh, as Rachel likes to say, word. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm just stuck in the late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> I'm still speaking like I spoke when I was 12. <laughs> All got right. It. Got it. You got to stay up to date with the lingo. Be right. cool with yeah. the, the kids. I'll say indeed. Uh, our next question, I'm a post-bac pre-med student and the university where I take classes is going to be online next semester. I will therefore be taking Orgo online. Will this be frowned upon? All right, so this is just continued COVID issues uh, as COVID ramps back up, unfortunately. For our fourth wave, uh, schools are going to take some more online stuff. And Scott, you did a... Um, inside Med Admissions, all about how COVID it will impact the 2021-2022 application cycle. And it seems like most, uh, at least the guests that we had, that most schools are going to be flexible. They have to be flexible because schools went online last year uh, with with COVID and, and schools may continue to go online. And, and I think it would be unfair for medical schools to say, well, don't go to the online school. Go find another school that's doing in-person, whether that's a farther drive for you or more expensive or putting you at risk. We don't care. Go in-person. I, I don't see schools doing that for the foreseeable future. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, as we dis have discussed on this broadcast several times and as w as was certainly discussed at the uh, Inside Med Admissions broadcast, the med schools are caught in the same COVID pandemic that everybody else is. They, they understand the limitations. They get it. Uh, so I do not think, as this questioner said, I do not think this will be frowned upon. I think it's just going to be taken as, as it is. And you have no you know, options here. And so just, uh, just do the best you can in the online format. And, uh, and that's all you can do. Yep. And uh, just a reminder for anyone who wants to watch that session that Dr. Wright led uh, earlier this year, it's inside medadmissions.com. I just put it up on the banner. Uh, so you can go check out the full COVID session there. Mm -hmm. 
Perfecto. Well, good one. I like this one. Could you provide a timeline of what is early, what is on time, and what is late for having your secondaries all in and completed? All right, so I'll give my, my quick spiel here, and then, and then I'll let uh, someone answer the secondary part of that. So every cycle, the application cycles or the application services open up in May. So TMDSAS, ACOMAS, and AMCAS all open up in May. And depending on the application service, you can submit at different times. The applications go out to medical schools, typically around uh, some, again, earlier than others, beginning of June, mid-June, late June. uh, Applications start to go out to medical schools. Secondaries start to get uh, received by students. And then it's really a a race for how fast you can turn around your secondary. So depending potentially on when your primary is verified and the school receives it and how their secondary process is, you can get secondaries at any point after that primary submission. Um, Again, going through the beginning of June, mid-June, late June, depending on the application service, uh, those applications go out to the schools. So with that said, all right, Let's let's assume a very early application. Primary gets received by the medical school, the kind of first wave. Medical student gets, or, or pre-med student gets um, a secondary request, let's say July 1st, right? Scott, w- what is kind of on time, early, late, et cetera, for having all of this stuff done? Yeah, secondaries need to be, you know, I, we, we uh, consistently suggest that you pre-write your secondaries, uh, you can look them up on, on the medical school headquarters website in terms of, there's actually another website. I, I can't remember what it is, but it's like secondary. What, what is it, Ryan? Secondary application? Secondaryapps.com. Okay. <clears throat> you can look them up there and get a good, good sense of, uh, of what they're going to be asking. You can pre-write those and, uh, and, and, and really get those in. I think often when students uh, delay is with the secondaries because it is, depending on how many schools you're applying to, it can get a little overwhelming. And uh, you just have to be... Uh, very organized, uh, good time management skills, particularly if you're in classes, if you're working, you know, other things going on. Uh, but getting those secondaries in is really critical. So I would say as soon as you finish the primary, you start pre-writing those secondaries, getting them done. And uh, some of the schools are going to wait and request a sec, uh, that you complete a secondary. Other schools, the expectation is that everybody completes the secondary. And so you need to know the differences, know the, the requirements of the medical schools where you're applying and, uh, and just, uh, get, get moving on it. So don't, don't delay those secondaries. Uh, as soon as you uh, have submitted the primary, get, get working on them. The question always comes in. I know about this rule of thumb, this two week rule of thumb, and some schools do have hard deadlines. So pay attention to those. Uh, we always talk about this theoretical rule of thumb of two weeks. And the question always comes in, well, I got behind. It's been four weeks. Should I still submit this secondary application? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't, if you've delayed for whatever reason, 
keep keep uh, you know absolutely because if you don't submit the secondary you're not going to be considered it's it's your your application is going to be considered incomplete and you'll be off the table so you don't want that so even if it's a little bit later that's a lot better than no consideration at all yeah definitely all right Verena, you um, you've been working on a lot of secondary essays with students. What are you seeing potential issues with secondaries that may be causing delays from an editing and just kind of content standpoint? Um, so far, it's it's been okay. It hasn't been too too overwhelming. Um, a lot of students just really struggle with how to phrase something they've used in a previous secondary application with, you know, with a new one and not sound repetitive or, the, or they'll struggle with um, choosing what's the most meaningful. And so, you know, they've got like eight different most meaningful in there. Um, things like that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm thinking activities. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, but really the secondary, that's what that, that whole concept of, you know, I've written the same thing <laughs> over and over again. How do I make this sound different? Um, that's what I've been seeing the most. Um, but you know, that's what we're here for. We can help you kind of talk about that and, and help things sound a little bit unique. Um, every time you write it, even though it is challenging. Um, uh, but, but overall, I mean, the ones that I've been, I've been seeing, um, they've been pretty good. It's just getting them out and getting them on time. Yeah. 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 One thing I've noticed, um, and I noticed this a lot earlier in the summer when students were, inquiring about getting secondary essay help and they would say things to me like well I'm about to sit, submit my primary so can I get secondary help in four or five weeks right so as much as I think we've tried to spread the word um, the idea of pre-writing your secondaries is still not as as well understood as I would love it to be um, and that still applies for people this summer because if you submitted your primary application a little later and you're waiting on it being verified, this is time you could be using right now. Um, but also for future year applicants, listen well, apply this lesson. Everything yeah. in the application cycle wants to be pulled as far forward as it reasonably can go. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to make one other point. I, I think in my experience, one of the things that students uh, frequently fail on is you need to very clearly understand the prompt. What, what, mm. Not only what they're saying, but what they're not saying. What's the underlying issue here in the prompt? Uh, and then really focus in and address that prompt question question because you know on over and over again i see students who they're trying to use as verenia said they're trying to use verbiage from another secondary and and it's very easy and i think it's easy to get lazy and just say well this this prompt was kind of like that other prompt and so i'm going to use this question and tweak it a little bit and stick it in here and uh and i think you know sometimes you just can't do that you you can use some parts of what you've written in other other secondaries and that's that's totally acceptable you've got to understand the prompt and you've got to address the prompt and you've got to be specific about these uh about these issues that they're that they're really wanting to get at don't see this as something that you have to do to get on with things see this as a very vital part this is what that particular medical school really wants to know about very specifically and so Specificity is really important. Don't be too general on those uh, on those responses. Yeah, good point. Love it, love it, love it. Hey, before before we continue, I want to show off uh, 
awesome new feature inside of Mapped that we've released. Uh, if you're a Mapped member now, you can sign up for it. If you don't use Mapped yet, you're watching this on YouTube later on, um, you will be able to sign up for Mapped and then add it uh, or sign up and add it as you're signing up. Uh, but we added Mapped Chat uh, to Mapped, which is a new feature that will allow you to have one of us, one of all four of us, actually not one of us, all four of us basically be your pre-med advisor. So a lot of students are pre-health advisor. A lot of students are going through this process either as non-traditional students who don't have access to an advisor, let us be your advisor, or you're at an institution where you have an advisor, but maybe for some reason you, you haven't clicked with them or you don't go and talk to them for whatever reason, um, and you want our advice. And inside of Mapped now, you can add chat to your subscription. And it's under your profile. If you come under your profile here and under your subscription plan, there is now a kind of premium feature add-on as it takes a second to load here. Um, there's this add-on feature here uh, that you can add. And, and as we're recording this, we have a sale going on. So I, I won't mention the sale, but it's $250 a year, $30 a month. You get three months or more than three months, I think, for free uh, if you sign up for the year. And and what it allows you to do is under the advising tab here is you can literally chat with us. And so you can see Rachel's been responding. I've been responding. Scott's been responding. Uh, I can say, hey, I need help. Um, <laughs> and, and someone will respond to me. Uh, and so you can see this message here is sent to mapped chat. Um, or we should probably change that to mapped advisors. And then I also have an an advisor, non-mapped advisor, who I've granted access to my mapped account. I can chat with them if they have enabled it. So you can use mapped chat with your advisors at your school if you've added them. Uh, and it's under here, under manage advisors, you can add your own advisors. Um, or, as we mentioned before, you can chat with one of us or all of us under mapped chat. And you can see that Rachel just responded to me. How can we help? Uh, you can attach transcripts. You can attach whatever you want here, some, some fun things to do. So that's mapped chat, which we just rolled out last week. Uh, because a lot of students don't have access to advisors and, and they've been asking for something like this. So now you have it. The other thing I'd like to mention is that if you do have access to advisors, um, personal mentors, school advisors, you can also use this feature to message with them. You just yep. need to invite them um, to I, see I your I showed file. That. You did? Okay. Yeah, I, sh I, I showed how to it. manage advisors and add them. <laughs> I'm just saying it again because I was... You're, you're so impressed with the feature. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, so I you wasn't can, you actually can, replying. <laughs> you, can, you can add your advisors here under your profile, under advisors. Uh, and then all of these advisors can use the, the chat feature for free. They don't have to pay for it. Yep, yep. Um, and it's a great way to do it. But I think it's important to also remind students they have to add or request that their advisor 
non-mapped advisor sign on for this as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. They're, so okay. I did I did let all the current mapped advi- the current school advisors using mapped already know about the feature. So the first step is inviting your personal advisor mm-hmm. or school advisor to see your map file. And then they will also have to choose to enable chat. Um, some advisors may have other ways that they want you to reach them. So it does need to be a mutual agreed upon thing. But I think for some people, that's going to be really convenient because then you're messaging right where you're looking at the data. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's awesome. All right. All right. Can you describe your suggestions on editors for personal statement activity descriptions and secondaries? Are there times when an editor who doesn't know you is better? Interesting question. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Verinia? I'm tempted to say yes. It's probably better um, because they'll approach it from a very non-biased perspective, and will, you know, it, it's actually a good way to really show if you're putting out there what you want to put out. Because if this person doesn't really know you or know your activities or what you've done on your path and on your journey to medicine, they can, they have that unbiased uh, point of view. Yeah. They can give you feedback. Yeah. I, I would even go further and, and not worry about the unbiased, but the uh, emotionally um, <laughs> protective point yes. of view. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the people who know you want mm-hmm. to protect your feelings mm-hmm. and won't tell you the truth. Right. right. So mm-hmm. I, I can't count how many times, uh, I give feedback to students and I'm very much a street shooter. Um, and students are like, Oh my gosh, I see exactly what you're saying. Why didn't anyone tell me this? Right. Why didn't anyone tell me my personal statement was terrible? I'm like, either they don't know how to review a personal statement, activity description, secondary, et cetera, or they don't want to hurt your feelings. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the phrase I used to use all the time and especially in college admissions was find someone who respects you more than they love you. Mm-hmm. Good right. point. Like it's Good okay point. if they know you, but yeah, like the protective thing is spot on. You want someone who will shoot straight, mm-hmm. who will think about the long game for you. They'd rather hear this honest feedback than, than hear me be gentle. Right. I mean, a constructive criticism sometimes doesn't hurt, but sometimes it does. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with a personal statement where you might feel like you birthed a child, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> But if you went off the wrong path or if you, you know, you started telling stories that are personal to you, but not about why medicine, someone's got to call you out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, there's lots of resources, right? There's mapped. You can get one-on-one advising with us. Um, there are sometimes pre-med students who will swap, which, you know, they're not necessarily going to be experts, but they're in the same boat as you. And then at least it's free and you guys are helping each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there are school advisors who will help. I know Verinia and Scott, when you guys were at institutions, you helped with essay some. Um, so there's lots of different resources to go down. Yep. And I would, say, I would say something very similar about interview, practice interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when, if you get somebody that's too close to you, uh, that uh, a practice interview with them, while still you know, could be helpful, uh, you, it, it may be the same kind of, you know, same kind of situation. So you, you often need somebody who will shoot straight with you, who maybe doesn't know your background and doesn't know your emotional makeup and all that stuff and be able to really kind of experience you as an interviewer would experience you fresh. They don't know you. 
And uh, so I, I would kind of put interviews in a, in a similar, similar uh, position as, as these, uh, these uh, essays. Mm-hmm. Good question. Yeah, that is a great question. All right. Who I like this one with USMLE going pass fail and residencies for MD and DO merging. Should those factors be considered when applying to medical school, especially if I'm leaning heavily toward surgical specialties? So just a point of clarification for those who maybe don't know the backstory. USMLE step one is going pass fail. Step two uh, and step three are not pass fail. And then the MDDO merger, so the step one going past fail and also complex level one going past fail. Um, step one is going past fail in 2022. I don't know when complex is going past fail. It may be the same timeline. Uh, and then the MDDO merger happened last year in 2020 as we're recording this. So um, that is finalized that means that uh, historically there were residencies that were protected only for do applicants that has now gone away uh, every graduating medical student every residency applicant can be an md or do to any program here in the states and they're all accredited by the acgme so that's a little bit of the backstory if that helps um scott what do you what do you think about this you know, I honestly don't think that, I mean, I, I think step two is going to continue to be very important yep. in the residency selection process. Uh, step two, timing-wise, typically is taken at the end of the third year, maybe beginning of the fourth year, uh, depending on, you know, logistics and stuff. But um, so step two is really going to continue to be very important in this in this residency application process. And, and I, I would say, that, however, that when you're applying to medical schools, I don't think that you should really put a whole lot of consideration into the reputation of the medical school and how that flows with uh, with uh, residency programs. I think it's much more about your clinical performance in that step two score. Uh, those are really the top things that the that the residencies are going to be looking at. Uh, they they want to know that clinically you have it going on. That you've really you know you're really rocking rocking it, and uh, that's that's what they're. That's what because best of all worlds, they want you to be able to step on to their residency day one and be able to perform. And mm -hmm. uh, if, if they're going to have to do a whole bunch of back stuff to get you up to speed, they're going to be less likely to want to to want to include you in their in their residency class. Yeah, I I actually just got off a, a podcast interview for specialty stories with a program director for uh, I, she's actually a fellowship director for pediatric ophthalmology. And then right before that I was on with a program director for, for something else. I, f I forgot off the top of my head too many, too many interviews today. And, and basically that, that was the answer was the, the weight of step one is shifting to step two uh, in, in terms of score and Really, what they're looking for are uh, preclinical grades, how well you do your preclinical years, your first two years historically of, of medical school, and then evaluations, uh, and very specifically evaluations from ideally a program director in the specialty that you're interested in going to. And so from a school list 
point of view. If you're very interested in maybe a little bit more of a nuanced surgical subspecialty, look for medical schools that have that training program at the mm-hmm. medical school or the hospitals yep. that are affiliated with the medical school. Yep. If, if you're um, interested in, in our, our good friend, Sonny Nakai, Dr. Sonny Nakai uh, talked about this once when we were talking about fit of medical schools. She formerly is from UC Riverside. Um, and the conversation was, if you're interested in plastics, don't come here because we don't have a plastic surgery residency associated with our program. And so really understanding potentially what you're interested in. And that can get tricky because the far majority of school of students change their mind even after they get to medical school. But you have to have some kind of inkling of what you're interested in to help you take a look for those types of programs. Yeah. And, then, and you know, most medical schools, I, I would say probably all medical schools, allow their students to take uh, elected, those fourth year rotations, those elective rotations and stuff, you can do away rotations. And so you can do those in other medical schools where maybe you're interested in applying to a residency program at another medical school. You can go do an away rotation at that institution and get to know their their residency faculty, and sometimes that can help out in terms of your being able to uh, to uh, be selected uh, for their program. But there's multiple ways that you can kind of do this. Yeah. Yep. All right, we've had a couple questions about what is or is not clinical. It's always a popular topic. <laughs> Let's dig in. We, we we need to start like a, a game show theme of, is it clinical? <laughs> I totally thought about that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it says, Rachel, you answered this, but would love to hear some more thoughts, expand on it to help understand the difference between clinical and non-clinical. It was related to volunteering at a hospital directly working with patients slash children with cancer, helping alleviate the stress of being in the hospital by visiting them in clinic, reading books to them, playing games, etc. It sounds like potentially child life uh, services there. Is yeah. this patient contact, is the patient contact what defines it or patient contact plus helping treat them through taking vitals, et cetera. I love that extra differentiation at the end. Yeah, so to clarify, it is child life services. Um, yep. And she mentioned it, so it's volunteer work. And when the, the offline discussion happened in a Facebook post, and um, what I had read was mostly about reading books, playing games, and that didn't sound clinical to me. But, you know, sometimes you have to have a dialogue to really get into it. Yeah. So I, I'm very familiar with child life because I have a child who gets a lot of health care um, and child life, I would 1000% say is, is clinical. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I, I'm sure it depends on the hospital, it depends on the setting, but child life, when they interact with my daughter, they come into uh, a procedure room or they're in the hospital room sitting on the bed, like interacting with the kid as they're going through procedures or waiting for their procedure or post-procedure and, and interacting with them and helping them, right? It's, it's not rolling them and changing them and doing bedpan stuff and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really a distraction method for kids as they're in the hospital. Now, we've, we've compared this potentially to, right, bingo night at the nursing home where Bingo night at the nursing home, 
I would not consider clinical because the setting in this case makes all the difference. When historically we say the setting doesn't matter, I think the setting does matter here. You're playing with the kids as they're going through stuff in the hospital room, uh, distracting them, doing things with them, I think makes the difference. Um, and, and that's just, I ha- again, I have a lot of personal experience with child life uh, as a parent. So maybe I'm a little biased for that. Yeah. Yeah, when I first heard it, it, one, I did make the nursing home association where we always say no. And I was also thinking back to my own time as a child in the hospital. Um, I don't think they had child life services then. I just remember being really bored, right? Like, I just remember lying in bed like, oh, I'm too tired to read. My, can my mom read to me? Um, mm. So I was picturing like post-op boredom recovery as opposed to helping me through the day while I'm actually getting procedures, which I do think has a different tenor. Um, So there's a lot of nuance here. Yep. And and I will tell you that I've heard from students that some schools don't like child life as clinical and that's their fault. They're wrong, but that's their their opinion and they're allowed to have it. (laughs) Ryan has right or wrong answers and other people have opinions. (laughs) And that really gets at the point of when you're when you're filling out those activity descriptions, you're the one that's choosing what you're going to identify something as. And as long as you've got a good backup sort of rationale for that, then you go for it. You know, they're not going to you know, mark you off their list just because they don't agree necessarily with one of your activity description, you know, categorizations. So just keep that in mind that you're the one making the decision. Yep. Yeah. Similar to how AMCAS and ACOMAS can reclassify your grades. A medical school may see you mark child life as clinical and they're like, yeah, no, we don't, we don't think that's clinical. And they'll just, they'll change it and recalculate your numbers if they're going off of that. And they, they have the power. So expanding the, on that, would you say that if someone had child life, they may want to get another kind of clinical as well? Yes, uh, unfortunately. I, again, I think, I think I like it. It's not the best clinical experience. It is, in my mind, clinical experience. Um, but I, I think there are better ways to interact with patients in a more direct way that you potentially would be interacting with them in the future. Um, And so I I think that is a a more realistic kind of exposure to, to test for yourself, right? And all of this, we talk about this all the time. Getting clinical experience is not for the medical schools. Getting shadowing is not for the medical schools. These are testing the hypothesis of, I want to be a doctor, right? It's the scientific method. Your hypothesis is, I want to be a doctor. And then you set up experiments to go test that hypothesis by getting clinical experience, by getting shadowing to prove to yourself that this is what you want. And so um, I I think child life is is on the weaker side of of a a test for that hypothesis. Clinical experience is for you. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think a similar one is we often get people inquiring about what if I did care for someone in my um, family. And I, that can count as clinical, but our yep. typical response is it should not be your only or your primary clinical. Correct. So I just, I think you kind of have to be aware of when they might be, when it might be one you have to defend. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Um, all right, well, let's play Is It Clinical again? <laughs> uh, I was a case manager for a youth homeless shelter. While I did standard case management referral for housing services, psych services, and doing psychosocials when needed, I was also considered direct line staff. So this means assisting with medication administration and management. Would I consider this clinical? Mm-hmm. So this may be a great example of you can split it into two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. What do you think, Vernia? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you need to go through special training to administer medication. Um, all of that is is very much in line with sort of clinical experience. Um, but it's also... Um, non-clinical, right, in the psych-social area, uh, yeah. managing behaviors and things like that, and, and social services, providing those social services. So it's both. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. And, yeah. And so uh, a coma specifically tells you in, in their instructions, you can split it into two. A coma, TMDSAS, don't have limits in terms of how many experiences you can put. For AMCAS, it, you may be in a pickle if you are limited in spaces, uh, but it's very common for students to split one activity into two categories. Just don't double dip for the hours. <laughs> right. All right. Inconsistent GPA, but upward trend the last 40 credits. How significant are the last 40 credits when it comes to considering a post-bac or master's, assuming the rest of the app is solid? So I'm assuming the upper trend is in the undergraduate mm-hmm. GPA pre-post-bac mm-hmm. because they're yeah. considering potentially a post-bac or master's. Right, right. Yeah, I think, yeah, I definitely think that the last 40 credits are going to be uh, key when, when post-bac programs or special master's programs are going to be looking at you as an applicant. Uh, they want to know that you can handle things and that you're not going to totally, uh, you know, the wheels aren't going to fall off. So I absolutely think that the, the last 40 hours will be key. Yeah, I, I want more data here, uh, more more information. What what is the final GPA, and what is that trend? Where are the inconsistencies? Because if the last forty credits were over junior and senior year, and you have a three six GPA, uh, and and the last forty credits are like a three eight or three nine. A lot of times I say that is that your 40 credits was your post back, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, you did what a post back is supposed to do, Mm -hmm. which is prove academic capability. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's more data that that I would need to see here. And and this is a perfect example of where uh, the mapped chat comes into play, where a student a student can can ping us and we can go directly and and look at their their um, GPA graphs and everything and give them that to that sort of information. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, not that we won't answer it here, but it, we're never going to have the same insight as we do when we have all of your map file. Yeah. All right. Follow up on our friend who is asking about residency with MD versus DO. More clarification given the changes above. Should I avoid DO programs more now than in years past considering I'm looking to match in a surgical subspecialty, surgical specialty? No. 
I don't nope. think so. Nope. Almost every program director that I talk to for specialty stories, almost everyone says they look at MDNDO candidates the same. Uh, there are exceptions. There, there have been some hoity-toity program directors at some very prestigious <laughs> universities centered around the Northeast, um, where there still is a, a nose uh, turned upwards towards osteopathic students, and that is going away. I think more and more and more and more. Um, and I, I don't think it's an issue. Big, big picture. I don't think it's an issue. Right. I I agree with that completely. Yeah. Big picture, I agree with you. I guess one question I have, and I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, is I've noticed one of the leftover biases that still exists in some cases is with application fees, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. at least one school I can think of that I think is not in the Northeast charges like 100 for you to apply as an MD candidate in the, in the thousands. Oh, I think you're, you're talking about... Um for like away rotations and stuff like that. Oh, is that it is away about? rotations. You're right. It's not yeah. residency. Thank you. Yeah. And, and yeah. University of Colorado, where I'm at, does that. They, they charge exorbitant amounts of money. And, and I don't know if that's they're kind of on the back end from an insurance standpoint, if it costs more mm. to insure DO versus MD. I, I don't know why they do that or if it's just a way of, um, uh, what's the word, discouraging DO students from applying for whatever reason. I'm right. not sure why, but you're right. But yeah, be, because because of the single accreditation now, all the fees are the same. They all go through Aris. The AAMC gets all of that money, which I'm sure they're excited imagine. about. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for correcting me. That's an important distinction. Yep. All right. Well, very well, exciting. We've come to a close. Um. There will be some, oh, there's, there's another question, but before we answer that, there will be some changes here with Ask the Dean, specifically with time and day that we do this. Um, so just stay tuned for that for everyone watching live. And for watching, if you're watching on replay, it doesn't affect you. All right, let's take this last question. How early should we or can we request our letter of recommendation? And can our app be verified before they are received? So I'll answer the second question first. Yes, the verification process has nothing to do with your letters of recommendations. Whether or not the school sees your application as complete or not without a letter of recommendation is a different thing. Letters of recommendation, Verinia, how early should students request those? Uh, and, you know, you can honestly ask from the in the semester that you've taken the course. Now, depending on how far away your application is going to be, right, you want to stay in touch with that professor and ask in the cycle that you're applying. So let's say January, February of that cycle. Um, but we have in the past um, have kept recommendation letters on file for students for the committee process down the road if they mm -hmm. do go through that process. If you're not in, in, in that process, don't worry about it. Uh, I would say uh, request your letter in the, in the year that you're applying. So that January, February of um, your application cycle. Yep. Agreed. Yep, yep. So if, if you have a, a rock star professor freshman year and you want her to write you a letter of recommendation, you can say, hey, Dr. Smith, I loved you, and I would love for you to write a letter of recommendation. We did some great things this year. Um, 
can I stay in touch with you over the course of the next few years? I'm going to be applying to medical school X, in next year, and I'll, I'll reach out to you then. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. what you can do. Yep. Awesome sauce. Well, it's another Ask the Dean in the Books, episode 64. Uh, trucking right along, mm-hmm. having some great fun with you all. So yep. hopefully this was helpful. Yep. We'll, we'll see you next time. All right. All right. Bye, Bye everybody. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.